Hey everybody, Pastor Gary here. I'm super excited today because I get to talk about what is one of my favorite subjects. Anxiety! No, just kidding. The Gospel of Jesus. And you see, here's the thing. When it comes to anxiety in your life, the most powerful thing that we wield in that battle is the truth of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. All that He has done for us should be the greatest source of strength when standing in the midst of stress and anxiety. Unfortunately, all too often what happens is that in the midst of the stress and anxiety, our focus becomes on the problem that is staring us right in the face and not on the power of the Holy Spirit that is within us to aid us in the battle. We focus on our own frailties, faults, and sins. And when we do this, we will lose the battle. So today, my hope is to help us refocus on Jesus and all that he has done and how he is an ever-present help in our difficult times. So, let's look at our passage this morning. <clears throat> this morning, we're looking at Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, through chapter 4, verse 1. It's a strange connection, but that's the passage. Not that I have already obtained all this, Paul writes, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly body, bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> Paul starts this section by addressing a possible concern that he has seen crop up in other churches. He doesn't want anyone to misunderstand that when he previously stated that he has counted all things a loss in order to gain Christ, he is not saying that he has arrived at some level of spiritual perfection that they now need to strive to attain. And so he is going to make, <clears throat> so he is going to admonish to essentially them to essentially not think too highly of themselves and what may appear in their minds to be spiritual accomplishments, so to speak. In the previous section, Paul had stated that he had suffered the loss of all things in order to gain Christ, to be found in him, to know him in both his suffering and in his resurrection power, and to finally attain the resurrection of the dead. Was Paul stating 
that he had attained some level of spiritual perfection? Paul has seen this error creep into the church at Corinth, and many in Corinth would have drawn that conclusion from what Paul had just written. <clears throat> this error that Paul is concerned may be creeping into the Philippian church is actually quite common, unfortunately, even to this day. We first saw it in the church in Corinth in Paul's first letter that he writes to them. Throughout the letter, we see that within the congregation in Corinth, there was a fascination, you might say, with knowledge, the spirit, outward signs of power, and spiritual perfection. All of this culminated in some of them believing, as we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, that everything is permissible for me. Unfortunately, as we see in the rest of the letter, that they had neglected the ideas of loving one another, sexual purity, and avoiding idolatry. We're not certain if these teachings were beginning to enter into the church in Philippi, because Paul doesn't address any specifics, but he is certainly addressing here the same general pervasive idea that we should be able to attain spiritual perfection in this lifetime. We can see in verse 12 the intensity with which Paul wants to make certain that his readers understand that he is not saying that he has achieved some sort of per spiritual perfection. He writes, Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. A literal translation of the Greek would state, start with the phrase, Not that I have already obtained, or been made perfect. Most English translations add the direct object, all this or something similar, after the word obtained. The problem with this is that doing so causes the passage to lose its intensity. Paul knows he's not perfect, and by leaving the direct object off, it amplifies his statement by placing all of the force upon the verb and not the object of the verb. We do the same thing in English all the time. For instance, if I said, Billy Bob thinks he has arrived, by stating that and leaving off what he arrived at, we simply say that he's arrived. I place all of the emphasis on the fact that Billy Bob believes he's arrived. This is exactly what Paul is doing in this statement. And so he says, I have not obtained or made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. He is stressing that his spiritual journey is still incomplete. He is consistently pressing on towards a greater level of maturity in the faith. I believe that Paul was a man into athletics, as so many men are. He likes to use alliterations that are sports-minded. The language he uses here and elsewhere to explain the generous, the strenuous nature of his efforts to fulfill his vocation are taken from the world of athletics or from the military oftentimes. He is just a typical dude. So in verse 12, we should see that Paul pursues the knowledge of Christ, his resurrection power, and union with him at the final day with vigor. Why? Because on the road to Damascus, Christ Jesus is the one who came and first took hold of Paul. So Paul reiterates yet again that he has not reached any level of spiritual perfection and is now going to express the long, hard road that he is on in the constant pursuit of constantly improving his spirituality so that he might reflect all the better the image of Jesus to his lost and hurting world. And then he says, there's something that I do in pressing towards that goal of reaching Christ. I forget what is behind and strain forward toward what is ahead. When you are in an endurance race of any type, you cannot look back. You need to constantly look ahead towards the finish line, 
to look back at either a stretch that was particularly difficult or one that was triumphantly amazing means to slow down in the current stretch in which you find yourself. One of the mistakes that we often make with this passage is to say that Paul doesn't focus on his prior life to Christ. This is easy to do. He has just mentioned that prior life, but Paul's discussion at this point is about his progress as a believer. He is not discussing his days prior to becoming a believer in Jesus Christ. Also, whenever Paul uses athletic imagery as he does here, he is always speaking about his present struggle and his present labors as an apostle. It is this that is his focus here as well. We similarly need to have a similar mindset. We cannot focus on past failures or past victories. When we do, we will stumble in the present and simply cause more anxiety for our present situation. So where does our focus need to be? What is it that Paul is focused on that is for him, I believe, the greatest source of peace and calm in the midst of anxiety-laden situations? Let's look at the very next verse. Paul writes in verse 14, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul's pure focus is the goal to win the prize for which God has called him. So what does that mean, though? Paul was called to be an apostle, and so he runs his life in a way that brings glory to God through his apostleship. In the Old Testament, Israel was called to be the people of God. Paul stresses that God now calls people of many ethnic and social backgrounds to be that people who are of God now. We have been called into a great degree of fellowship with Christ Jesus. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, which reads, God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. We have been called to eventually enter into his kingdom fully. We see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. One of the most important things to see in verse in these verses is that we are called <clears throat> to not be fully realized here and now. It is in a future with Jesus Christ that we place our hopes and goals. We can see this clearly in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. The hope that Paul now races towards is God's call to be a part of God's people who will one day stand before him on that final day and finally find their fulfillment in their self-identification in and with Jesus Christ alone. Paul now shifts his emphasis slightly and writes in verse 15, All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. This is from the NIV translation, and it is a very good translation of this text. Some other translations that you might be reading right now take a much more literal translation. But the wording in a literal word-for-word -word translation is actually at this point a bit confusing. For instance, the New American Standard Bible, which is one of my favorites for studying due to its fairly literal translation, writes it thus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. So some of us just read that Paul said he's not been made perfect, and now he says that as many of us have been made perfect. Wait just a second. Is Paul confused, or am I? The difficulty is that with so many words, it carries a fairly wide range of nuances, this word perfect. 
and Paul tends to use it in a manner that rarely should actually be translated as perfect. It can also be translated as meaning complete or expressing the idea of completeness. It is oftentimes used to express the idea of reaching a full age, particularly in regards to manhood, which during this time was a celebrated reality for young men. It was the idea of moving beyond childish things and pressing on towards maturity as an adult. And it is this nuance that Paul is using this word here. And so here is how we should see this word being used by Paul. He is saying that some of us have reached a level of maturity in our relationship with Christ Jesus that we are able to discern the wisdom of God from the wisdom of the world. We can see this very clearly in Paul's usage of this word in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, which reads, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. The word mature here is the same word for our verb for our word that we see in the NIV translates as mature, and some translations translate as perfect. Funny enough, if you have a New American Standard Bible printed in 2020 or sooner, they've modified their translation of this word to read mature and no longer perfect, and in my opinion, have come a bit closer to perfecting their translation. Yeah, I did that. All that said, we need to see that Paul's focus here is still not on spiritual perfection, but rather on spiritual maturity. So Paul is saying that the spiritually mature person doesn't focus on their past spiritual attainments or victories, but rather recognizes that they must continually focus forward towards their ultimate call because there is still yet much effort needed to reach their final destination. And then, as though Paul expects some to disagree with him, he puts in this funny little phrase, I have to admit, I would love to say this at times, but I tend to bite my tongue when it comes to, starts to come out. He writes, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Paul just said, hey, look, if you think I'm right, that's fine. You just need to mature a bit more and God will make it clear to you that I'm correct and you are wrong. But to reach that point, you must continue to press on toward the end goal of eternity in Christ Jesus. And then again, another backhanded slap from Paul in verse 16, he writes, only let us live up to what we have already attained. This idea that Paul is expressing here to live up to what we have already attained speaks of us living a life characterized by faith. And that characteristics and the characteristics that Paul would be speaking of, he has written on in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 through 25. They're familiar to most of us. They are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It is a life that God himself has recreated. Paul's already said early, earlier in our letter that God has begun a good work in us, and many of these qualities are evident within our lives. But Paul doesn't want us to focus on past spiritual victories or failures, so as to slow down our forward progress towards our end goal, when we are made complete as spiritual men and women before Christ Jesus. Now Paul makes a serious shift in his writing and directly warns us against theological errors that may creep in among the church. Paul writes in verse 18, For as I have often told you before and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul's now ramping up his intensity and in warning the Philippian church against theological error. Why he is doing this is not expressly stated in the letter. It may be because of his experiences with the Corinthian church. We are uncertain. What we do know is that Paul takes very seriously this particular idea of spiritual error and so we must as well. 
So what was the error of the Corinthian church? Well, it is one that today is unfortunately rampant among much of the church, both liberal and conservatively evangelical churches as well. The Corinthians had found the suffering apostle Paul, who had chosen to adopt the apparently weaker character of the crucified Savior, simply intolerable. For them, knowledge and power were key, and the one who possessed both must therefore possess what they would call spiritual maturity. And this maturity freed them from having to indulge Paul's injunctions against eating meals sacrificed to idols, as we see in 1 Corinthians chapters 8-10. through 10. It allowed the wealthy among them to flaunt their indulgences before the poor within the church during communion. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17-34. through 34. In fact, because spiritual illumination and power were key, they had come to a point where they, had not, where they not only indulged in, but celebrated sinful sexual conduct. This is seen in 1 Corinthians chapters 5 and 6, as well as 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21. Concerning these individuals, Paul says in the very next verse, their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. Key to understanding what Paul is saying, I believe, is to define best what these earthly things are. I do not believe that they are the practical things that we do each and every day, simply to live life here on earth. But rather, I believe that they are the things that characterize this worldly life as it stands in opposition to God. So, for instance, we see Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, a list that reads, Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language. There are only two of these, impurity and evil desires, that are not specifically social sins. The rest of these are sins that can and will make, will work to destroy the unity of the church. And we are going to see later in chapter 4 that these sins have already begun to break apart the unity of the Philippian church. These sins not only can and will work to destroy a church, but they can and will work to destroy personal relationships as well as causing each of us to live our lives separate and hidden from the world and from one another. They will destroy families and marriages. These sins are always sources of significant amounts of anxiety in the lives of anyone touched by them. So we must consistently wage spiritual warfare against these sins. How do we do this, though? Well, Let's look back now to verse 17 for the first means by which God has called us to combat these anxiety-producing sins that are real and are in each of our lives. Verse 17 reads, Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. First and foremost, Paul says to look to his example, not that he's perfect, but that he doesn't allow his imperfections to weigh him down and cause him to lose the race. Instead, he continually presses on towards the end goal. He messes up. He trips up at times, but he recognizes that he just messed up and tripped up. He then gets back up, dusts himself off, and continues the race. He doesn't look back. He looks forward towards the end goal, striving all the harder to imitate the life of Christ Jesus. And so he says, look to his example and look around yourselves to those who are a little further down this road in maturity and look to their example. Reach out to them to allow them to help pull you along this long haul that we have before us. They have been where you are now and know how to overcome the pits and perils that you now face. Allow them to come alongside you and bear the burden of your anxiety, fear, and stress. We don't run this race alone. We run the race as a unified church 
as the body of Jesus Christ. Also, in verse 20, Paul writes, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what it's all about right here. Are you an American first or a Christian first? Woohoo! Pretty tough one right now, isn't it? Paul could claim Roman citizenship, which in his time period was supreme above all else, but he counts it all loss in order to gain Christ and an eternal citizenship in heaven. There is no such thing as being too heavenly minded that you, you are no earthly good. Our hope, our focus must be the goal to which we now strive. Life eternal with Jesus Christ. We are now no longer American citizens first and foremost. We are citizens already of heaven. And so no matter who wins an election, there is no anxiety because it is but a fleeting finite moment in time. And this time too shall pass away. There is but one eternal time which we might look forward to. That is eternity in heaven with Christ Jesus. This mindset is a mindset that absolutely demolishes anxiety. I must say, it's not an easy mindset to gain. But when you begin to think like this, it tends to free you from the worries, stresses, and anxieties of this world. Why? Because they will pass away. Then, in verse 21, in regards to Jesus, Paul writes, Who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. One day, all of this, by the power of Jesus, will be transformed. We will be eternally present before Christ Jesus. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. Sin will be no more. Our lowly, fallen, sin-soaked bodies will be transformed just as Jesus' body was transformed. And we too will have glorified bodies that will no longer know sinful desires, no longer know sickness or pain. We will be made perfect. This is the hope in which we live our lives daily. But so few of us ever think on these truths. This so rarely is where our minds go when faced with stress, anxiety, or worry. Instead, we focus on the here and now, and we get stuck in one spot, and we fail to move forward in our race to the finish line. Paul finishes this passage up by writing, Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord dear friends. It is only by having a right focus on Christ Jesus and Him alone that we will be able to stand firm in the Lord in the midst of this fallen, sin-soaked world. So what? First, a word of warning. We must recognize that none of us have arrived spiritually. <clears throat> That's right, none of us. I haven't, you haven't. So don't act like you have. And by extension of that, stop expecting others to act like they have as well. They haven't. We're all, we are all going to stumble and get tripped up. When it happens, do you reach out to others for help? When you see it happen to others, are you critical? Or do you reach out to help others get back up? None of us have arrived. All of us are growing spiritually. All of us have areas of spiritual weakness that Satan is going to exploit. Areas that this world somehow knows to press in on and press on. How do we respond? That is what is important. The church today has similar problems still to this day. Much of what we now call the New Age movement has become pervasive within the church today. The key to understanding these influences is understanding some of the focal points of the New Age movement that are problematic to the gospel. 
there's a greater importance to the mind than to the physical world and a greater emphasis on the imagined than the rational thought. The result of these focuses is moral relativism, which is rampant in America right now. Jack Underhill, a New Age publisher, writes, There are no victims in this or any other area. No mistakes, no losers. Accept that, and then take responsibility for making your life what you want it to be. Look, he's saying that evil is not real, and that your ultimate salvation comes from within you. It is what you make it to be. This line of thinking can actually be found today in both mainline Protestant churches, as well as some within the American holiness movement. Today within the evangelical church, at times, there is too great of an emphasis placed upon what is often called a realized eschatology. All right, I know that's a new phrase for most of us. What that means is that what is promised in the end times is real for those who are spiritual perfect or mature, as they would say, today. So they preach that truly mature Christians do not experience sickness. They should have all of their material needs met or should have overcome nearly all sin in their lives. This other gospel preaches that physical wealth and health are guaranteed today through the power of the Holy Spirit within you. There becomes a loss of a clear understanding of human evil and they come to almost a self-attainable realization of heaven in the present. Unfortunately for adherents of these movements, all I have ever seen is massive stress and anxiety when they fail to attain their physical hopes and dreams, because this means they have not reached the level of spiritual perfection necessary to attain them, right? Healings don't happen because they lacked the faith. Financial windfalls don't happen because they lacked the faith. None of this is biblical. Instead, it is a twisting of the truth of the gospel into a means of, for some to feed their bellies and find their glory in what will only come to their shame. Why? Because their minds are set on earthly realities. So then how should we live our lives? Where is your focus? Is it on Jesus or on yourself or on this world? Jesus came to this world to free us from the bondage of sin. Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 through 3 reads, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We run the race that Jesus himself ran before us. We endure this world until the bitter end at times, but we recognize that we do not run this race alone. The beginning of the passage in Hebrews 12 says that because we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, speaking of all of the Old Testament saints, speaking of the saints who have already run the race and finished and now stand before Christ Jesus, their examples laid out for us throughout the scriptures don't typically speak of what we would usually call the Christian victorious life. They speak of broken men and women living their lives day by day by the power of God within them. This is not a sprint to the finish line. We are in a marathon. We need to look to the biblical characters God has given us as encouragement. We can see that they all stumbled and fell, just as we will all stumble and fall. 
But what is most important in each and every one of these stories is that God was faithful to see them to the finish line. So when we stumble and we fall, look to Jesus, because when you will then you will see the outstretched hand of your Christ, your Savior. That hand will most look likely will most likely look like the hand of a fellow saint running through life right alongside you. But know that it is by the power and grace of Jesus that that hand has been extended. And so take hold of that hand and experience and feel the touch of your Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we are so thankful that you are our one true God. You and you alone are the creator of all things. You have created and called us into being. And that call upon our lives is a call to eternity with your Son and our Savior, Jesus the Christ. Jesus, we are so grateful that you are the author and perfecter of our faith. It is not us. You are the one writing our story. It is your hand that is guiding our story. And it is in that truth that right now we are able to find our rest and to find our peace. Holy Spirit, we relish in your presence and peace that you bring in the midst of this stressed and anxious world. Let us find that peace and rest in your presence this day and every day. God, empower us to press on toward that goal that we have and focus on you and you alone as the finish line for our lives. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We love you and we praise you. Amen.